You're listening to The Pavilion On Air. Hi everyone, and welcome to the second episode of The Pavilion On Air. My name is Phil Raskin, and we're here today with our two hosts, Ryan Mannikin, Shanika Shi, and this episode's special guest, Sean Slade. So, let me tell you guys, he really doesn't need a big introduction, and you probably come across his music on a daily basis. From the success and unique sound of his own recording studio for the Apache in Boston, to Radiohead and projects with Lou Reed and David Bowie, Sean, it is such an honor having you here at the Pavilion on Air. What do you say? Should we just jump right in? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, Sean, we've all been in your classes, so we know that you've had an extensive career in music production and engineering. But for the audience that's listening in, could you talk a little bit about what made you want to pursue this field of work? And also, how has it changed since you first started? Oh, okay. That, that's, that's two big questions. So, but I'll start with the, my, my personal story, uh, which was I'd, I'd always been a musician. I, I took piano lessons uh, when I was a kid, actually forced to take piano lessons, but I ended up really loving it. And I uh, became what is now conventionally known as classically trained on piano. Although I was informed by my teacher right before I went to college that I, I didn't really have a chance at being a classical pianist. And I said, no, no, don't worry. I know, I know. I'm not that good. Uh, but, I, but I did reasonably well in the competitions. But uh, so I'd always been, you know, uh, I'd always played music, but I was also obsessed with recorded music more than anything. And then my life changed musically when I uh, went to, uh, I entered college in the fall of 1975. And then I went to this little club in downtown um, Manhattan called CBGB's uh, in April of 1976 was the first time I went there. And I had never seen uh, rock music up close before. I'd seen Elton John, let's say, play at the Madison Square Garden and big arena rock shows like that. I was also under the impression too that uh, because, and this was probably because of progressive rock, the English progressive rock scene, I was under the mistaken impression that you had to be a virtuoso to be in a rock band. I saw the bands at CBGB's and I realized, no, that far from it. All you needed was a loud electric guitar and a Marshall amplifier turned up all the way and know, and know how to play bar chords. I mean, that was basically the music of the Ramones. And I said, I want to do that. And so my life totally changed and I threw aside classical music, although I still love it very much. And I, was, uh, I became obsessed with uh, playing in a band and I tortured anybody within earshot as I taught myself how to play guitar awful awful squawkings and feedback and uh well but after a while i got got good enough to do it and so when i graduated i moved to uh boston which was a great city at that time uh for to be a rock band to be in a rock band in boston because there were plenty of clubs to play and um there was a lot of rehearsal space that was really cheap and it was a lot cheaper to live in boston at the time than uh than it was in New York. It's, and I was from New York, so I was very keenly aware of that. And uh, uh, the other reason that I was sold on Boston, too, is that it had, it had the only major FM radio station in the country that played local music. And the reason they would do that is because um, a great source of their advertising incomes were from local clubs who were advertising the shows that rock bands had during the weekend on weekends. And so they would preview um, local music in order to get people interested in these in these shows. 
and also college radio too. I remember I was I was shocked and, and amazed where uh, you could literally make a demo tape on a four track, which my first band did, and get it played on college radio. This was way before digital. And uh, if you gave them a reel-to-reel tape with a snazzy-looking cover on it, uh, chances are it would get played. And that was that was highly unique in terms of uh, how music got uh, released all over the rest of the country. So my interest then started, uh, I went through what most people do when they try to uh, form a band. I, my first band was terrible. Uh, second band was marginally better. And then the third band I was in was actually pretty good. But all during that, though, I was, I was very, very much in, into recording. And so was the bass player of the band, a guy named Paul Coldery, who I knew from college. And we went down to New York and at a discount hi-fi place called Uncle Steve's, we bought the entry-level multi-track tape recorder at that time, which was a TAC reel-to-reel four-track. And when I mentioned this, this would have been in 1981. When I mentioned this, I have to explain that Pro Tools has not been around forever. In fact, Pro Tools, the prototype of Pro Tools was first introduced at the AES convention in the early 90s. Nobody I knew was, was using Pro Tools until the later in the 90s. And then by the year 2000, Pro Tools had pretty much taken over. But back in the 80s, if you wanted to record, you had to spend a lot of money to go to a professional studio or, uh, well, we, we were kind of do-it-yourselfers, which was a term for punk rockers at that time. Uh, and we went down and, and got this uh, uh, four-track machine and we figured out how to use it. And we started recording songs in our basement, demos. We recorded our own band and then we recorded other bands. And that's, that's where my interest in, in the studio life really got going is because I'd always, I've always, always been obsessed with records. Even when I was a little kid, I was really into records, 45s and LPs and such. And I realized, well, why not make them? And when you had the means of production, uh, as primitive as a four-track was, uh, you could make a record. And uh, the first recording that we did that got played on the uh, college radio was a big event for me. And I, I said to myself, oh, this, you can do this. And it was also part of the whole DIY, do-it-yourself thing, too. The, the, the best thing about punk rock was that it gave you this attitude of no fear that you can do what you want to do you don't have to wait around for a record company to say you're good you don't even have to be that good when you first start out it's 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 the experience of it and getting better as you go along was was part of the aesthetic and i i maintain this to this day i don't feel as if there's anything truly intimidating about the music business it really is a matter of how creative you want to be and how you want to go about getting your music out there and and, and today it's even easier with everybody having their own uh, Pro Tools, or more to the point, having uh, Logic or Ableton, which seem to be a more popular format, uh, and everybody's making their own music, which I think is great. Now with digital and home studios, uh, it's open to everyone, which which has its pluses and minuses, meaning the means of creativity are open to anyone. I mean, even something like Ableton Live, uh, which is relatively inexpensive in the grand scheme of things and has a lot of sounds on it. That's why I'm convinced that's a popular platform uh all of this is very accessible but you still but the problem is is that you still have to come up with decent songs and and reasonably good content if you've ever um taken a visit over to the uh vast morass at uh, cd baby you realize that anybody can release a cd now that's what cd baby seems to exist for so anybody can make a record now the question is though is that record any good or not I think I think the only uh, thing that I could say was quote unquote better in the old days was that there were 
you really there was a level of of quality that had to be maintained in order to release something now anything can be released which as i said it 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 can be good if you if you're wild and experimental and you're doing something brand new or um it can be bad if you don't know what you're doing which a, a lot of, i hear a lot of records where that's what it sounds like people unleashed on um, on a digital platform and have no idea right. what they're doing um so would you say it was more like um like a technical aspect that like inspired you to start for apache or like what was like the main like or, or like did you have like a sound in mind already that you tried to achieve maybe well yeah but uh but to answer your first question no it was exactly the opposite uh one of the reasons that i think Fort apache took off is that we were musicians first and engineers second we hadn't we hadn't been to engineering school in fact the, the, the there weren't that many places to go to engineering school that the program at berkeley wasn't invented until the late 80s and we started Fort apache in the um in the winter of uh Uh, 1985 uh, and our main our main goal was just to record uh, to have a place to work where we could record our own bands and learn how to do it so we had uh, we had taught ourselves or I had taught myself how to get basic sounds using the four track and the step up for Fort Apache was we then got the um, the entry-level multi-track for what was considered a professional or demo studio which was an eight track we got an Atari 5050 half inch eight track Uh, and then maybe a year later, we graduated to a one-inch 16 track. Uh, but the thing that, that the musicians loved about the, the fort was that we didn't try to make it look like a nice studio. In fact, if anything, it looked like a rehearsal room, which made the bands that came in to record feel very comfortable. In fact, they remarked upon this. They said, wow, this isn't, most studios are like a dentist's office. Everything's all clean and they have all these rules and you guys, are, it looks like a rehearsal space and you have no rules whatsoever which meant that if you wanted to drink beer and smoke pot, sure, go right ahead. Um, and we also, because we were self-trained engineers too, um, we ignored certain rules like uh, when it came to stuff like recording loud guitar amplifiers. Uh, most engineers at that time would, the first thing they would do if a rock band came into the studio was t tell the guitar player to turn it down. Because it's, it's hard, it's really hard to mic up a blazingly loud amplifier. Uh, but since we didn't know any better, we just stuck microphones in the right spot and got these sounds that nobody else was getting at the time. Now, they were probably considered rather crude sounds by people at the time, but um, but it, it produced its own aesthetic. The first band I worked with that uh, had a, a hit record, it was specifically a record that was a hit in England, was a band named Dinosaur Jr., and they're still around now. And one of the reasons that record that I made for them uh, – was successful was that in fact one of the reasons i worked with the band in the first place was that the uh, lead guitar player well here's an example uh, he would plug his guitar a fender jazz master into his marshall and he would just take his hand and turn all the knobs on the marshall up all the way love it he said after the first couple of sessions he he, he, was, he was a very laconic guy and he said in his inimitable drawl he said i like you because you don't tell me to turn down. <laughs> That's really awesome. And, and that was, and, and you know, as I said, so much, so much of what we did in the fort was based on, on um, kind of a, kind of not knowing what we were doing. And, and yet it was really exciting. And we learned as we went along and the, and we learned with the bands too. And we were told, you know, we were told the, when we first started the, the studio that we could never make it work as a business if all we did was rock bands. But we, thankfully, we completely ignored that probably reasonable advice 
uh, we ignored it, and that became our stock and trade. And we ended up cornering the market on uh, on uh, rock bands in the Boston area, which happened to coincide with a with a creative renaissance on the Boston rock scene just about the time we started the fort. So everything everything fell into place by by well, there was a lot of luck involved, but there was also serious hard work. I remember both Paul Caldery and I we would spend weeks um, in that studio. Uh, I didn't really care that I didn't have a life outside of the studio. I was more than happy to just go to the studio every day, record music and make money because that meant I didn't have to have That's a real really job. Cool. <laughs> so apart from like the, all the technology like aspects and like the the vibes you had going like in, in your studio, which is, is quite attractive. Is there like a usual procedure how you approach a production of an artist or record or is it like more or less always unique depending on the relationship of the artist? Um, I think one of the things I, 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 which is a recurring theme in my classes is that every time, every, every new session is brand new. Every uh, artist, be it a, a, a band, whatever genre, singer, songwriters, vocalists, it's every session you start from scratch because you're working with different people. And that is first and foremost what I think a producer does too. Is uh, and, and, and I, I was an engineer as well as a producer for years, so I was able to juggle both of those, both of those uh, requirements of the, of the job. But uh, if you're producing purely as a producer, usually you work with an engineer and you let them do, get the sounds, uh, which, I, which I've been doing recently. Uh, and then my, so my, my job is to work with the artists on the songs, the song selection, um, making the songs, going through the songs in pre-production to make sure they're as tight and well-expressed as possible. And then the whole idea is um, going for the best performances. And all of that has to do with how you relate to the artist, uh, either gender or whatever genre. It's that, that is a constant. But each, each, um, each session, uh, even, even today, I mean, I've been doing it now for 30 plus years, and I still get a little nervous when I start a new record because it's almost like, okay, what do I do? You got to figure that out in the first couple of days. Uh, but that's part of the fun. Right. So like out of all those productions you did, was there one that like stood out to you in particular or one that was the most exciting for you maybe as a producer, but also personally? Well, you know, that's an interesting question that I do get asked on a regular basis. And it's hard for me to single out uh, a particular session because the, the, the one I have had so many fun ones with so many great people Uh, but you know, I've made, I've made records that have sold and I've made records that were complete stiffs. Um, you can never really tell, um, in any given situation, whether a record is going to sell or not. So I actually never concerned myself with that. But to answer your question, and, and I, I have been thinking about this recently, I would say, um, if, if, if you forced me to answer that question, I would say, well, it's probably the, um, the three, um, sessions or records that I was uh, I was lucky and outrageously lucky to make with um, artists that were my idols when I was a kid and that would be that would include uh, an album I made with Warren Zevon who was when I was in college was my songwriter idol um, his first album totally changed my life I couldn't believe how great it was and 20 years later I was making a record with him um, and then working with Joe Jackson, uh, also because when look sharp came out that first Joe Jackson album, I, I probably listened to that album over and over again for like months. I just thought I just couldn't believe how great it was. And then I got to work with him on two albums, 
uh, later on. And then I, I, was, uh, I was able to make uh, one song with Lou Reed, uh, which was also an amazing uh, session. And I remember uh, sitting there in the studio as we were cutting vocals and I, I just, I was shaking my head going, I can't believe it. I'm sitting here recording Lou Reed. He's actually just standing in front of a microphone being Lou That's Reed. Insane. That's actually really cool. But following up on that, in terms of your procedure and an approach to the production of a project, how do you balance your technical versus your musical approach to a project? Especially when you're the producer on the project and you can exercise creative control in terms of the recording, the production, the arrangement. How do you balance approaching something technically versus musically? Well, it gets back to what I was saying initially, too. It's, it's the music first uh, and the technical aspects follow. Now, obviously, um, you know, the sound is important, but there's a lot of leeway in, in how you record and what's considered a good sound. Um, uh, I, 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 I had a kind of a strange uh, alternate career as uh, as a uh, one of the one of the founders of the lo-fi movement. Uh, I made this record on eight track with a band called Sebado, who were one of the first they were one of the first uh, alternative rock bands to record to a um, cassette multitrack. And they were able to use the lo-fi sound of the cassette multitrack as an aesthetic. So, and I was fascinated by that. So, uh, you, you know, you have your, you have your hi-fi sound, like the steely dance sound where everything's meticulous and everything's perfect. But then you have the opposite to that where the grunginess or the, um, lo-fi aesthetic is, 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 is much part of the music as, uh, as, as anything. In fact, certain kinds of music, you have to have that sound to make it work. Like I can't imagine recording certain bands and trying to make them sound like steely Dan. It would just be an abomination. So, uh, so to me, to me, the sound has to fit with the musical aesthetic and that can be anything. That's really insightful, especially as Berkeley students, where I think often we struggle to find the balance between approaching something musically, but then also perfecting it technically. It's super useful to know how to balance the technicalities of it, but also just sometimes letting the music happen in a session or in a project. Well, the other thing is I noticed at teaching at Berkeley too, is that, you know, you guys are in heavy, in MP&E you guys are in heavy training to be professional studio engineers. And that's important. And so, in, the, in other words, it's that old art artistic adage where uh, Picasso says something along these lines. You have to, you have to learn, ha learn the rules so that you can break them. But, but you have to learn the rules That's first. a really great way to end that question. But on the flip side of things, how do you deal with disagreements with artists when they start to exercise what they call creative control in terms of the production or the engineering when, to the best of your knowledge, you know it's better to go the other way? Well, once again, I, 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 I got to answer that question in like two parts, because um, one thing that, that um, Berkeley students are dealing with is um, your students and learning how to produce, but you're also working with, uh, with artists, singers, songwriters, or vocalists who are also learning how to, to uh, be Absolutely. artists, too. And a lot of times the, you, you have a level of extreme insecurity um, with, a, with a fledgling artist that manifests itself with the need for control, uh, the need, uh, or not the need, but more like a, the one thing I noticed about um, insecure artists too is that they tend to be knee-jerk naysayers where um, you might suggest something that would improve their song and they don't even want to hear about it. It's my song. How dare you tell me how to change my song? Uh, I've run into people like that in the studio back when I was more of a studio engineer. Uh, but when you're an engineer, you don't have to worry about that. You just, you, you let, you let you do what they want you to do because they're really producing. But if I'm working with somebody as a producer 
and they start telling me that everything has to be done their way, well, then they don't really need me uh, because they're, they're, they don't really want me to produce. And so a lot of times when I go into a, 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 a record in the last handful of years, I sit down with the artist and I say, you know, when I produce, I, I like to do the producing and I, I like you to be the performer and we'll choose the songs together. But when it comes to the decisions about how they're recorded, what takes are the best ones, that's entirely up to me. Are you cool with that? And most of the time they'll say, sure. And then they have a good experience. And we all have a good experience because they realize that a professional record producer has your best interests at heart. Uh, that's the gig. You want to bring out the best in that artist. Sometimes the artist has no idea what the best is and cannot, and is not an objective um, judge of their own performances or their songs. So uh, most, most professionals that work uh, making records realize that that's the case and they usually uh, defer to their producer. I have had fights with, uh, with established artists, though, and uh, usually when if, if push comes to shove with an established artist, they always win. That seems to be the case with, with artists that are at a top tier or commercial tier. Yeah, but you understand what I'm saying. I mean, there, mm, yeah. to me, there's the difference where, like, if somebody is, like, for instance, if somebody is telling me how to mic them, well, then then I'm not producing. For sure. Totally agreed. Right. So there's obviously a financial aspect um, with every project and production. And apart from that, how do you decide which artists you want to produce and work together with and which one you don't? Yeah, you know, uh, um, uh, I, I do have a story that I enjoy telling, although I can't reveal the identity of the band uh, for, for probably, probably <laughs> That's for right. people. Uh, but uh, um, there was a band that uh, they came out of nowhere. This was in, I think it was in 1994, uh, maybe 1993. Uh, yeah, no, it was written in 1994. This band uh, made a record. Uh, for Geffen Records and uh, came out of the out of nowhere and sold like five million copies. And so to do their follow up album, uh, uh, Paul Coldery and I and our, our our work as a team at that point was you know it was we were getting a lot of traction because uh, we'd had a hit with Radiohead and uh, also with Hole, um, and so we had a high profile and we were on the short list of producers to do the follow up to this unnamed band. And uh, I remember my first meeting with the leader of the band, I was really turned off. There was something about him, I just, I just didn't like him. And he was complaining about being a star and how awful that was. And then I just thought, well, Jesus, poor bastard. You know, he sold five million records and that's a drag. <laughs> well, you know, and so that was rubbing me the wrong way. But he was, he was kind of adamant for some reason. I think, I think the fact that both Paul and I were somewhat reserved and weren't going out of our way to try to get the gig. But he, he, he was fascinated by that, I think, in a kind of perverted way. So um, he flew us out to Los Angeles to meet with the band. And we hung out with them in a rehearsal studio, maybe one of the fanciest ones I've ever been in. Spare no expense, huge room. You could tell that they had just made a lot of money because everybody had a brand new vintage instrument. Uh, But the problem was when the band got together to play their new songs, they weren't a very good band. They weren't playing very well together at all. Uh, and couple that with the fact that they wanted to imitate the Red Hot Chili Peppers and not record in a, in a studio, which, which would have been my preference, but to uh, do that Rick Rubin thing where they rented a house in Hollywood. 
and then built a studio in the house. There was that, uh, what was the, it was the, that, that hit that they had with Rick Rubin, that first one. Um, and so that was a very trendy thing to do. So they wanted to do something like that too. And I remember going out to look at this house and the mansion that they wanted to rent was really dreary. It was like the Adams family house, only not as entertaining. And, uh, I just said, man, I don't want to do this. I just, I'm not into it. So, uh, it was a decision that most, most, uh, professional producers would, would have said, you're insane. Um, uh, that's a great opportunity. And that record will, um, will probably sell. And so what do you, what do you even, what's your problem? And my response was that, well, I really, I don't want to spend three months, four months with these guys. Uh, it, it, it would be too much work and, uh, I just, it would be living hell and I wouldn't be a good producer for them. So that's really what it came down to. I just didn't have the enthusiasm. And so it's not fair to anybody, um, to take a gig when you're not totally into it. No, that's, that's really cool. I really respect that. Um, so if we move a tiny bit from like the bigger artists to like a bit smaller ones, how do you, um, or like how do those projects um, with like smaller artists such as maybe Jaja Tao differentiate to those um, maybe like with bigger ones you work with? Well, it's 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 actually believe it or not, it, 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 this might seem strange strange response, but it 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 it's the it's the same in a lot of different ways. You're still dealing with an artist and trying to bring the best out of them. There's there's always a different dynamic though when you're working with an artist that's made a lot of records right. versus somebody like. Uh, 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 Zhao is the guy's name, um, who, who uh, came to me and he'd never made a record before. And, uh, one of the things that was, uh, that he, uh, one of his goals was that he wanted to do a project at not only to make a record, but also how to learn how to make a record with me being the teacher. And, uh, that, that also made me hesitate a little bit too. So, uh, once, once I realized that, uh, uh, what the situation was and that he did have a large budget, uh, but he, he approached me right when I first started working right. at Berkeley and I was more concerned with getting to, to getting up to speed at Berkeley the first semester, any, any teacher who's first semester at Berkeley will, will understand what I'm talking about. It's very intimidating. Um, and you want to do, you want to do well. And so I wanted to concentrate entirely on, on getting my uh, professor scene together. And I realized that working on his record would be too time consuming at that time. But luckily though, um, the engineer that I work with on a regular basis now, a guy named Benny Grotto, who graduated from MP&E in 2006, who I met at a, um, uh, Austin based, uh, Austin in Boston based studio called Mad Oak. Um, that I, I worked with him. I met him in 2007. I thought he was great. I was really keenly interested in collaborating with a younger engineer because I needed somebody to run the Pro Tools in a more efficient fashion than, than uh, I could. So this would have been in 2013 when I was approached by Zhao. And um, I realized that Benny would be a much better candidate to work with Zhao than I would. And so I then became what's known in the, in the industry as the, the executive producer, which meant that I really wasn't producing. I was overseeing the project and keeping tabs on it and chiming in with opinions when they were asked for. There are, there are songs on that album when I listened to it uh, the other day for the first time uh, that I did not work on, but there are other songs where I was involved in the mixes. So that's the extent of that. And then I made a deal with Zhao that uh, if he wanted me to mix, um, that I, could, I would do it at Q Division on the Neve over there, and that um, he only had one shot at tweaks because I 
did not want to go through the endless, you know how it is working with an artist when they come back to you every week wanting oh you to change something. <laughs> yeah. No, I've seen that happen and I, I'm too old for that, frankly. And, and I, I, so we made a deal. I said, here's the deal. I'll give you a mix and then I'll give you one, one uh, set of tweaks and I'll do whatever you ask me to do to change it. And then you pick the mix you like. Uh, but, but that's it that when we're done with that, with this particular session, then we're done. And I, I could see he was hesitant, but then he said, fine. And it worked uh, he said, good. And it worked out fine. So that I, what I did was that to answer your question, I set the parameters of the collaboration pretty strictly. He agreed with it and then we were good. Awesome. To go. Thank you so much for your honesty. I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, I, I I'm actually psyched that, uh, that, uh, that one, that record is out and two that he seems to be doing quite well. I did find that, uh, some, uh, some, uh, blog post that said it was one of the best albums out of China that year. So that's kind that, of nice. That's actually, that's great news. I, I got to search that up. Um, so Sean, I actually want to jump back to something you briefly mentioned, which is uh, selling records. So I feel like um, when I'm talking to people who make music, there's always an argument over trying to make hits versus um, trying to make your own music. Um, what is your opinion on this? And what do you, uh, what advice do you have for artists or producers who are extremely focused on making commercial hits? Well, okay. That, that's, that to me is more of a question of the genre of music that you're working on than anything else. Like, okay. So there is a particular style of music now, uh, that's the, that's, that's, you know, ruling the billboard charts. And it's, it's a very distinct genre. All those records sound roughly similar to each other and that they're all based, it's almost like going back to the 50s. They're all based entirely on uh, singers that are stars. And then the producers then, uh, and this is very old school, this harkens back to Phil Spector, the approach of where the producers come up with the tracks and make the music and then the singer sings them and that's the collaboration. Now, if you choose to work in that genre, well, there are certain rules that you have to follow and you have to compete with that kind of music. But it still comes down to the quality of the individual song. I don't think, I don't think that changes and that doesn't change from genre to genre. Now, that particular style happens to be what's ruling the charts now. Now, in five years from now, I, I don't think it's going to be. I don't think that this, uh, let's say what I call sometimes diva music uh, with, the, with the, the, the singers that have that American Idol kind of approach. Um, I think it's at a certain point, the public's going to tire of that. And then the pendulum will swing usually to something opposite. If you look at the history of art and this goes back through all the, all the centuries of history of art, you have what I call the prevailing style. And then the anti-style, the prevailing style is what's selling at that particular time, but either people get bored with it or a new generation of listeners comes along, which in pop music is very important to remember. The, the seven-year-olds of today in five years are going to be determining what's at the top of the charts when they become teenagers. And their tastes will not, will not be the same as what's happening now. So a lot of times what happens is the, in pop music, the pendulum swings into the, what I call the anti-style, which is the style that overtly rebels against that current style. So in other words, the, the style we've got now is with virtuoso singers and very artificially contrived sounding tracks. So maybe it's entirely possible that something that is akin to what happened uh, in the changeover from, um, from the hair bands of the 80s into the grunge bands of the 90s, which is an excellent example, uh, that might also happen in pop music too, where there will be a new style of pop that's more direct, more organic, more acoustic. But that, who knows? Nobody can tell, least of all the people at record companies. 
The people in the record companies are content to uh, to basically try to perpetuate what's selling now because it's a familiar product. But eventually the listeners will get tired of it and something new will happen. It's, it's, I think it's inevitable. Um, I'll give you the example. When I first came to, uh, to uh, Berkeley and started teaching production, everybody wanted to sound like Mumford and Sons. Do, do any of you guys even remember them? Sure. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm talking about then? <laughs> <I think so. laughs> So everybody then wanted to, you know, I, I actually had to make a rule. I said, no more goddamn banjos, all right? You know, so, uh, and because everybody wanted to be uh, Mumford and Sons, the Lumineers, what I called arena folk. That, that, was, that was the top of the charts. That was what was selling. So that's my point, though. Uh, how many years later is it now? And who even remembers who they were? And so five years from now, all the people that everybody are desperately trying to imitate uh, they also might be a thing of the past, too. Good example is Katy Perry. Uh, I remember uh, fielding questions like, how do I get that Katy Perry sound? And that was maybe like mm, four years ago. Now Katy Perry, she's over with. No one cares. Same thing with uh, Lady Gaga. Same thing. These are people who seem to be, you know, the, 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 queens, the queens of music that would last forever. And uh, now they're both, who knows what they're doing. It's, it's inevitable in pop music that the pendulum swings. And so when people are, are obsessed with chasing hits, I say, well, what are you exactly are you chasing? Are you chasing the sound of today? Because by the time you, you imitate the sound of today, it's entirely possible that it won't be popular anymore. Wow. For sure. That's that's, that makes so much sense. That was really, really well said. Probably the best I've ever heard anyone say it here at Berkeley. Well, thank you. <laughs> I've had a lot of time to think about it. Because I, <laughs> I seem to be the last bastion of art, arts for art's sake. Uh, and I, I only I only have that stance based on my own experience, which was that one decision I made when I got into production game was that I was only going to worry about the art and let the, and I wasn't going to care about the commerce. And uh, I've maintained that that duality. I, 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 uh, my my gig is the art. I'm here to direct the art and let let other people take care of the commerce. Uh, I have no interest in the commerce part of it. If it sells great, if it doesn't, it's still a good record and somebody's going to like it. Uh, when I when I talk about genres before too, I mean not all music is pop. There's plenty of beautiful art rock being made out there now, where the devotees of art rock love it, and that they sell they don't sell in the trillions of copies, but they still sell well enough for art rockers to have a career. How about you know? And the whole idea of the uh, I know uh, Billie Eilish has broken through with the bedroom pop, but there are plenty of other uh, bedroom pop artists like Soccer Mommy, for instance who's doing great and making great music and her music is getting into movies and TV shows. And that's a level of success that I think is doable shooting, shooting for, to, to try to uh, only work on the superstars. It's, it's just not a realistic way to have a career. Wow, those are some real words of wisdom. Um, so like if we take it a bit more into the technology side now, so apart from that shift in genre and like uh, production that you think might happen or like will happen in the future, Do you think there will also be a change in terms of technology like we experienced in the 80s, for example, and uh, when everything went digital? Yeah, I, exactly. I mean, it, 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 this is one of the things I teach in the intro classes that all music is defined by the technology of the time. Um, and in the 80s, a, is, is one of the, the most perfect examples because they had just invented MIDI. Uh, they had just invented rhythm machines. They had just invented synthesizers that weren't hand-built. They were actually mass-produced synthesizers. 
all, all of those were the new sounds at that time. And when you go back and listen to 80s music, um, that, that's, it's all there. Uh, the MIDI, the sequencing. I mean, sequencing had been and, and started to become popular in the late 70s with the music coming out of uh, um, Munich and the Giorgio Moroder sound. Uh, but then it really took over and became the, the music of the 80s. But also um, alongside of that synthesizer style music in the, in the 80s, you also had the, the new wave movement of rock bands um, and post-punk too. So there was all kinds of stuff happening. Uh, you, you go back and say, oh, that's 80s music, but there was a lot of other music being made at that point too. So as far as what's going on now, one thing I've noticed in the past five years too is music that I call Pro Tools music, where in and and I, I love Pro Tools music because the Pro Tools and what you can do with the Pro Tools as a editing, very powerful editing engine, uh, you can create music that could not literally could not be done back in the tape recorder days. You can create music out of all kinds of elements that don't have to be played. You can just program them, and I think that's a new uh, artistic. Uh, 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 aesthetic that i really like and i, awesome. I can see that Thank happen you so so much that's really cool um so how would you say your like your own productions have like influenced the culture and styles of music then so you know like how let's say nirvana ha has shaped like grunge and like how um how did you influence yeah the culture i'd say you know Well, you know, that, that's, that's, that's probably a, a, a question that could be more accurately answered by somebody other than me. But, the, um, but I will say this, though. Uh, one of the things that we set out to do, which I think we succeeded at uh, when we first started recording in the late 80s, was um, we were the anti-style to, um, to the prevailing rock music of the time, right. the, the, the glam metal and the Hollywood hair metal. And one, one of the things that um, I noticed about that music, which other than the lyrical content, which I found repulsive, um, was how unrealistic their guitar sounds were that they sounded all, all buffed and burnished and, and they were like, like shine to a high gloss. And, and I said to myself, that isn't the way guitars actually sound coming out of amplifiers. Um, sometimes in some of those, um, uh, the hair metal, uh, tracks, uh, the guitars sound more like a string section with all the, you know, the massive amount of overdubbing and, and the overtones and stuff like that. And what we wanted to do was in our quest for the anti-style was to get a, a rock and roll sound that actually sounded like a band playing in a room where we deliberately didn't spiff it up, didn't make it sound uh, nice. polished. In fact, nice. the whole idea was to sound unpolished. Right. I remember having a great conversation with um, uh, producer Kyle Lenning, who was a, a country, country producer legend. And, He had come to Berkeley for a semester, uh, well, to, to hang out, but he was also, he's an amazing B3 organ player. And he, he, he took, a, he took a, a semester off from his regular gig to come back to Berkeley and learn how to be a better organ player. And uh, I, I ended up, uh, I ended up yeah, he came to uh, my classes a couple of times and I ended up hit, really hitting it off with him, which I wouldn't, wasn't expecting because I said, well, he's a, he's a Nashville guy and here I am, this rock guy. But I bring him up. Uh, it's because, you know, this gets back to what I was saying before, that it doesn't matter what genre you are, all producers have a very similar sensibility. And and his sensibility and my sensibility were the exact same, even though we didn't, um, we were working in different fields and uh, musically. But he, he said a really interesting thing that really stuck with me. Uh, he said that uh, all producers have a sound in their head that they think of as the ideal sound that they're going for. And he quoted T-Bone Burnett 
as saying that every time he made a record, uh, he wanted to make it sound like a dance hall in Texas on a Saturday night. And I go, you know what? When I hear T-Bone Burnett records, that's kind of what I, the feeling I get. And, and I never would have thought about it. I never could have conceptualized it on that level. But to hear him say that, I go, you know, that's absolutely true. And so my, so we're looking at each other and, and I asked I ask Kyle, well, what's yours? And he mentioned his. And he, of course, he said, well, what about yours? And I said, ah, I, I want every record I do to sound like I'm standing 10 feet from the stage at CBGB's in the summer of 1976. Yeah, that's that's very specific, but I, I, I like that. <laughs> that was the music that had the most force. For, that was forceful music for me at that time. And I wanted to capture that sound. I wanted right. to capture the immediacy of a rock band and not, not the, uh, all the niceties that, that were being inflicted on it. In yeah, Hollywood no, I USA. think it's like a great thing to have a, a picture of like what you want to convey. Um, because that, then you kind of have like a goal in your mind. Um, but I kind of want to jump uh, back to something you talked about, Sean, which was um, Billie Eilish and bedroom producers. So I've noticed that a lot of people are, uh, there's like a trend, you know, a lot of people are coining themselves as bedroom producers. Um, so what do you think are the benefits or even fallbacks of producing um, and recording at home versus at an actual studio? Um, well, let me, let me just, uh, I'll, I'll begin my answer by saying, don't believe the hype. Uh, there's a lot of hype behind that. They're selling, they're selling Billie Eilish's music as well as the backstory of it. Um, that's, that's a key uh, part of its appeal. The whole idea that uh, it's made by her and her genius brother uh, in a, you know, a windowless bedroom someplace. That's very romantic. It's, it's, you know, it's like uh, Gauguin going to the South Seas or something. It's, it's, it's an exotic thing. Uh, and, and, but at the same time, though, it's not that different from anybody else who has a home studio um, and is making their own records. The one thing that's deceptive about Billie Eilish, though, and that music is that it, it is very, very well crafted by Phineas, but it's mixed in uh, totally pro studios by totally pro guys. So um, the way it's presented to the public is, is it's a much um, more finished product uh, because of the collaboration with, with seasoned pros than it is the, it's as much a product of Phineas's uh, great ideas and then the, the, the gloss that's being added to it too. Otherwise it never would have run, uh, if it was that bedroomy, it never would have run a, a won a Grammy. But I do like the fact that it pissed off all the engineers when they got best well, engineer. Yeah, because it, it looks like it's all recorded in the bedroom. So it's super like deceptive in terms of what is actually made in the bedroom or like what is recorded in the bedroom and what isn't. Yeah, and I think, I think, and I don't, his name doesn't spring to mind, but I know that the guy who's, who, uh, there are two or three guys that are the go-to mixers. Uh, and uh, one of them is a, is a Berkeley uh, MP&E graduate. Wow. I think he graduated like back in the '90s or something like this. So he's a seasoned Los Angeles professional, and so that there's a level of engineering. It, it's it's Phineas is coming up with the sounds and the and the the, the feelings of it too. Um, but uh, did I, I? I think I don't know, Shanika. I might have played it for your class, uh, or I did play it for one class. Uh, are you aware of a, a song uh, by the uh, Brit British glam rocker named Gary Glitter? called rock and roll. I don't part think two. you played it for our class. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't, I don't think I remember that. Okay. Go get it. Go find a copy on, on the miracle of Spotify. 
of Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll Part Two, and then listen to Bad Boy by by Billie Eilish. Awesome, we'll definitely check that out. Um, <laughs> um, with like stars like that arising, like almost like on a like monthly basis. Um, what do you think, or like, do you have? Um, do you have an artist in mind that might become the next, um, let's say, commercially successful rock and roll act? You know, no, because uh, uh, I'm not in that business of, of predicting. Uh, I know, though, that uh, strangely enough, and I've had this discussion with uh, with some of my advanced classes too. Um, for some bizarre reason, classic rock is making a comeback. Yes. <laughs> And and I, the only way I can explain it is I think it appeals to two totally drastically divergent demographics. One is the older music fans that still love their classic rock. In fact, if you if you ever listen to the radio and you turn the dial um, anywhere you go in your car, there's always one or two classic rock uh, stations where that's, that's the format, and they're obviously making money doing that. Um, there's a, there so there's a demographic where that's their heart and soul music, and that's never left. But I also think is being introduced classic rock, the, the hoary old dad rock um, is being introduced to a new generation of kids who uh, it's brand new to them as a sound of classic rock. Uh, so that explains something like the, the controversial Greta right. Van Fleet who sound exactly like Led Zeppelin. And I know that makes the old farts really mad. But um, when I listen to them, I laugh because I go, wow, they sound exactly like Led Zeppelin. They, they're, they're terrific. I love them. <laughs> That's so cool. They're all they're all nineteen twenty year old kids from the middle of nowhere, Michigan, and right. they're playing this music and they're appealing to other uh, Midwestern kids who just they they don't know anything about Led Zeppelin. They just love that sound. Well, it's exactly what you talked about before. You know, the music industry is very cyclical in terms of what's on the charts and what isn't, and you know what was hot twenty years ago makes a comeback, and everyone's all about it. But I guess that's just you know the way commercial pop music works. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the whole idea, too, is that it's, it's repurposed for the new generation. I remember the first time I heard Green Day was in the, an A&R guy's. Actually, it was in Rob Cavallo's office at Warner Brothers. And he was a young A&R guy producer at that time. He hadn't become famous yet because he had just produced Green Day and they hadn't come out yet. And I remember he was he was all excited and he's playing me Green Day. And I wasn't impressed because I said, oh, this sounds exactly like the music I, I heard, you know, um, in New York and Boston back in the 70s. Well. The problem was I wasn't the intended audience for it. Uh, mm -hmm. That music was intended for kids who had no reference point and had never heard that style of music. And think about it. How many years later was it? 20? Maybe more? Yeah. So so a 10-year-old knew had no frame of reference. And so that style of punk rock music, even though I found Green Day to be derivative, they didn't care. There was nothing. They didn't know what it was derived from. And so it was very exciting. And I got to say, too, Green Day are a genuinely great band musician-wise. Trey Cool is one of the best drummers ever. Oh, absolutely, hands down. But I think it's really great to, to get some insight into where you think the industry is headed and you know what these these patterns end up producing in terms of where music has been and where it could be headed in the next few years. Yeah, well, um, one thing I, I, I said it before and I'll say it again, no one can predict a hit. Uh, I've had, I've, I've produced records that I was convinced would be a hit and they were complete stiffs. I've had songs I've done that I wasn't that impressed by that sold millions. So uh, no one can tell, but that of all the people in the music industry, the last people to know what's going to be the next big thing is anybody at a record label. I mean, you know, that's just how labels have been in terms of running a business that is their commercial priority. 
And I don't see that shifting anytime soon, you know, where they're fully dedicated to just good music. No, it's all, it, you see, the one thing about the dirty secret of the labels is that A&R guys will go, they'll, they'll just be into the prevailing genre. I saw this happen with grunge. All these guys, A&R guys that thought they were so cool and hip uh, with, you know, uh, signing grunge acts, then uh, two years after grunge died, signing uh, Mouseketeers, and that they, they were fine with that too. Uh, it's a product. They're, they're not in the art business, they're in the product business. Just as commercialism works, but I think what's inspiring to note is that musicians are still out there to create art, to create music that is not a commercial product, but actually has some sort of value in terms of how it affects people. Yeah, but, you know, I'm, I'm also, I'm, I, I don't, if, if your goal is to make uh, something that's really commercial and you're really, really good at it and you've got a great song, well, then all power to you. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I never, there was this, uh, I think it was, I don't know if this is the most recent record, but um, our, 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 um, our friend Charlie Puth, I, he's the kind of artist I wouldn't expect to like, but that one song he did called uh, Boy uh, is one of the best songs I've heard in ages. Wow. And I mean, shout out to Charlie Puth for being an MP&E student, you know, from Berkeley. I know. There you go. Berkeley's pride and joy. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that's it for today. Thank you so much, Sean, for joining us here at the Pavilion there. It was such a pleasure having you here. And again, thanks a lot to everyone who tuned in. This is our second episode of the Pavilion on Air and we hope you liked it. Make sure to stay tuned for more great content about the arts and the music industry from the Pavilion. Also, check out the Pavilion Live on YouTube where we broadcast performances of original content. If you enjoyed the show, follow us on Instagram under the Pavilion Live. Stay cool and see you soon.